seventh episode of Rankin Review. I am your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and this episode we are doing Terrible Twos, Part 2. Regular guest J. Adrian Cook returns to once again discuss six sequels that do not live up to the original. I think you're in for a treat, and uh, I think if you're familiar with the show, you'll understand that there will be coarse language, and there will be spoilers. Please seek out the show at Facebook and on iTunes and on Twitter, and by all means send feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. That's it. No more further ado. Here we go with Terrible Twos, Part 2. has returned for our first genuine sequel episode, I think. Terrible Twos 2. Here I am, and I'm <laughs> happy to be here as usual. LP? Well, uh, thank you for doing it, and I appreciate you taking another six tough films on the chin. Uh, I thought this was a more interesting list, because uh, even more so than last time, you hadn't seen most of these, correct? <laughs> That's Well, I hadn't seen half of them yeah. at, the, at the time of this. Do they earn the title of Terrible Twos? Or do you think I was being too mean on some of these? Let's save it for the reviews. You want to save them for the reviews? Yeah. yeah. What I will say is that the movies that we have here are not as sacred a text. Uh, The six movies that we did earlier were movies that literally had changed my life and were super good. The, a lot of times, if you're making a sequel to something like The Exorcist or Ghostbusters, you're really, your back's against the wall already, just before you start. So mm-hmm. I get that. There was room for, for improvement for a lot of these. Right. And, uh, yeah. What but, I was looking for, for me, for this list, was a variety of bad. I think that these are all failed sequels, but I think most of the time they fail for different reasons. <laughs> definitely. And they're different types of bad as well. We've got some banal in here, and we've got some so bad it's good, and we've got some anger-inspiring as well. And, yeah... Uh, I was talking about this with you actually the other day. We often would rent movies from 49 Cent Video. Yes. We're totally aging ourselves because we frequented video stores. (laughs) (laughs) And we would watch, we would rent bad movies. Movies that we knew from the box, from our, like, obviously would be bad, just from observation. And we would watch them and we would make fun of them and we would have a good time. But at some point, this sort of change came to me where I went from enjoying these movies ironically (laughs) to kind of 
enjoying these movies. And I'm not sure quite what happened there. Well, it's been a mellowing out for me as well. I don't know if I'm at the point where I'd enjoy bad movies that I would have enjoyed ironic previously, but I think for me the 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 big turning point was actually starting to write screenplays. I did that in 2003 and attempted to write some screenplays. And then in 2005, I worked as a production assistant on the movie Just Friends yeah. while, I was, while I was in Regina filming. When you get some idea of what it actually takes to make a movie, it's, it's less easy to make fun of them in a lot of ways. Well, that's it, exactly. I, I mean, it's not really a great movie, Just Friends. Um, but at the same time, when I was back there with all those people... I saw professionals trying their damnedest to make the best movie that they possibly could. And So many of the choices are out of their hands when you're on the set, too. A lot of the decisions have been made before you get up there. What you're going to do is you're going to make the best product with the pieces you have available to you on the day. And so much can go wrong yes. during a production as well. If you start off with a good screenplay... It can be ruined by bad direction, it can be ruined by bad actors, it can be ruined by bad locations. Anything that's obviously glaringly bad can sink a, a decent movie and make it into a disaster, honestly. The other thing is the feeling that every movie, no matter how terrible, I think is somebody's dream project. <laughs> Or somebody's first and perhaps only professional movie gig. You know, somebody really poured themselves into this. You're and right. Just one person on set probably <laughs> thinks this was this is amazing. This, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was their huge, you know, Hollywood experience. It was their, you know, moment of, you know, putting themselves out there. And it's got a sting to put all that time and energy into something and put out the product and have people, you know, hold their nose and, and, and point and laugh at you. Yes. Now, being in a position of being an uh, independent <laughs> filmmaker myself, uh, I'm, I'm sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. So I've made it a point in my podcast is even if I'm not liking a movie, I want to be constructive about why. I want to just... I don't want to just be, you know, blowing raspberries in the back of the classroom. Yes. I like to be somewhat constructive. That said, with this, this terrible twos episode, the gloves do come off a little bit. Well, we have to still find the good, though. Yeah. We give the... the good credit where it's due and it's important to do that as you well know because well okay you know that one night you're actually there for this the one night that we just finished watching hobo with a shotgun <laughs> and we were sitting in the garage laughing about it and then i said what if yui bull bought one of my movies <laughs> and wanted to produce it yeah and I said at that time that I wouldn't know what to do in that situation. You'd take the paycheck. I would take the paycheck, and I would live with the consequences. Yeah. And that's basically what happens with every aspect of making a movie. Yeah. You make your little part of it, and then you give it away. And that's very difficult to do. Yeah, and it's one thing to be a guy who wrote a movie directed by Yui Bull, but... <laughs> At least you're not Yui Bull. <laughs> <laughs> you, you be careful or uh, Yui Bull's going to come here and KO you. <laughs> I will take that punch. Uh, let's here talk about the six terrible sequels we're going to discuss today. Day of the Dead 2, Contagium. I'm not going to say too much about this now because I just don't want to start yelling right out the gate. <laughs> yep. The Matrix Reloaded. Predator 2. we got a couple of sort of sci-fi horror sequels going on there. 
the hilariously titled Last Exorcism Part 2. Just take a second to get your head around that. <laughs> uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Freddy's Revenge. Freddy's Revenge. And the Rob Zombie remake, Halloween 2. N- not, not the Halloween 2 from the early 80s written by John Carpenter, but the <laughs> reimagined sequel a la Rob Zombie. Uh, so uh, those are about as different a bunch of movies as you can find. I mean, they, the thing they have in common is that they're sequels, but for the most part, uh, we're all over the place, and uh, I'm eager to get into it. Is there anything else you'd like to say well, before we jump in? Uh, I honestly kind of hope, since we're on the topic of disappointing sequels, that this episode is a little worse than <laughs> yeah. the last one. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I can't wait to find out what happens. <laughs> All right, we're going to start out of the gate, you know, (laughs) with real quality shit here. (laughs) Uh, Day of the Dead 2 Contagium. I'm not sure which part of the title bothers me more. The fact that it calls itself Day of the Dead 2, when it's clearly not a sequel to Day of the Dead, or the fact that it's called Day of the Dead 2 Contagium, when Contagium is clearly not a word, or something that's really referenced that clearly in the movie. Actually... Jerry says Contagium, does he not? He does. But he doesn't explain Contagium. And I looked it up. Contagium is an older word for contagion. And it's from Latin, and it is actually a word. So I should take it all back. These guys are actually brilliant. Geniuses! <laughs> uh, we have two directors here, Anna Clavel and James Glenn Dudelson. Dudelson, D-U-D-E-L-S-O-N. Um, they seem to acquire projects that have, or at least had in the past, some cult notoriety to it, so that they can release videos and make money off of them. The two most notable ones being this... Day of the Dead Contagium and Creepshow 3. Day of the Dead Contagium has nothing to do with the original Day of the Dead that George Romero made, and Creepshow 3 has nothing to do with Creepshow, nor does it have anything to do with Stephen King, nor is it scary or funny. <laughs> so they, they really do seem to like, how can we sell a package that has made money before we've started filming? If we can pitch to somebody, we're going to give you... Day of the Dead 2 or Creepshow 3, we can sign our contract, make our money, you know. This is this this whole fiasco to me seems like a business decision. <laughs> it and, is. Uh, that's where the problems begin. Yeah. Well, they did get a little bit more money into this movie than you would normally get in your average cheapo zombie film, though. Which is basically what this is. And what I mean by that is you've got some better practical effects and you've got some computer effects as well. And, I mean, they're not very good computer effects. In fact, that's, you know, your first indication that this is going to be a long slog is that uh, we see a computer copter fly past. Yeah. And it looks terrible. Oh, is this a video game we're watching? Oh, no. <laughs> a video game from 1998, yes. <laughs> Do we want to attempt the plot? Yes. Okay. Well, it begins on the desert island, and Sarah and McDermott and uh, that Jamaican guy are there. 
And uh, wait, wait, wait! Did we watch the same movie? <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, wait! That's right. This movie has nothing to do with the original nothing Day of the to Dead. Do with that, and I want to make that as clear as possible. <laughs> there was that hope when we first watched it that it might have something to do with it, but it was quickly dashed. I remember that yeah. many, many years ago. Uh, the plot, as it actually is, is there are inmates from a local asylum who are cleaning out a valley on some community service work, and they come across a thermos that has been lying there since the 60s. 1968. Ooh. Ooh. Actually... The same year of Night of the Living Dead. I'm sure that's not an accident. Mm. Wow. Okay, I hadn't even considered that. I'm, I'm twirling my mustache right now. <laughs> yeah. So, they uh, open it. One of them finally manages to get it open, and they in, end up releasing some kind of a bioweapon inside the asylum, which starts turning people into zombies and gives them a sympathetic psych psychic link. Yes. These zombies do not behave in any way like Romero zombies, at least initially. Everybody who's infected retains their personality for the most part, at least initially, and like you say, are psychically linked with each other. That almost would be interesting if we liked or cared about any of those characters, but... Well, actually, it was just the people in the room that got linked psychically. Yeah. I think that some of the other people who were infected just became average, dumb, Romero-style zombies. But it seemed like our guys, who we were supposed to like, they were supposed to be this charming group of rogues, slowly started to become more and more crazy as time went on as well. Yes. And I don't approve... I do not approve. <laughs> no, um, no. Yeah. Bad movie. We, <laughs> we had the rules of zombies. Romero zombies are pretty firmly established. Indeed. And we, we do not need computer lights psychically linking people. If I, you're going to call your movie Day of the Dead 2, show some respect. Indeed. God damn it. It's sort of like uh, Matthew Risling and I discussed a classic motion picture called White Noise 2, The Light. <laughs> yes. And we discussed how the, the original screenplay was clearly not White Noise 2. It was clearly probably just a movie called The Light that they decided to retroactively like, refit it into making it a sequel to a semi-popular ghost movie. This is just the same case with this Day of the Dead movie. This was a no-budget zombie movie made by people who just barely knew what they were doing. <laughs> and it seemed to have been retrofitted to somehow halfway meet a zombie movie. Not a Romero zombie movie, not Day of the Dead, but this unconventional zombie movie is being wedged into a conventional zombie sort of artifice. Yes, that's a very likely scenario, but I can't really comment on it because I wasn't that involved in the production but you know in the, in the production itself I mean there's you say it's a no budget zombie movie that's true but it does have more than others yeah and they chose to put some strange like their focus their emphasis where did they put their money they put it in practical effects I don't know how many of their extras were non-paid because it's pretty easy to get your friends to dress up but they had a lot of extras um, they actually had decent film quality in this movie as well, too. It looks pretty clean, considering when this movie came out. Um, it there looks was... expensive and yet feels cheap. Well, it, it feels cheap because of some of the amateurishness of the, of the production. But they chose, I guess, to cheap out on the computer effects. I mentioned the bad helicopter that flies by at the beginning, but... They also didn't spend any money on squibs and blanks. 
So the actors are miming all of their shooting, and there is a lot of shooting. Yeah. And they computer in the muzzle flashes, and it looks terribly unconvincing. There is something really frustrating when you can just sort of see people playing make-believe, especially with the guns. They don't flinch when the gun goes off. Like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a toy to them. It's a piece of plastic. It doesn't have any weight to them, and consequently not to us. I also find it frustrating slash hilarious how it tries to start with this big action sequence, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of money was obviously spent on this. A lot of squibs, a lot of brains being <laughs> thrown about. And, uh, you know, the uh, thermos with the evil chemical in it, it gets lost. But you got the feeling like the director or the whole idea of this open sequence was to start with a wow. Have them just like, holy <laughs> shit. This movie just started and it's already so amazingly awesome. And uh, after that opening sequence, I was... Uh, everything that I'm going to say about this movie, I could have said after watching the opening sequence in a lot of ways. And yet it's downhill from there. But you can see how they're trying to be this big action, bloody spectacular, and they're just not good at it. They're just not good at it. I'd have to agree with you. That my reaction to the opening scene was, wow, that was pointless. <laughs> and you can pretty much say that about every scene uh, piled on top of each other as the movie continues along. Um, here's something good about it. Go. Here's something good about it. Um, the dialogue is good. The dialogue is actually good. Um, problem is it's delivered by um, amateurs. amateurs. Yeah. So... When it comes out of their mouths, it sounds like a fork on a Teflon pan. And, yeah. And again, I think that it would bother me less if it was just a, a zombie movie, you know. Uh, dickhead zombies, instead of Day of the Dead 2. <laughs> because then I wouldn't be distracted waiting for, you know, this Romero world to kick in. Which isn't going to happen. Yeah. And it, it, if the beginning was the big thing that was supposed to wow us, you know. If you look at the filmmaker's intent... When that title slams up, Day of the Dead 2 Contagium, we're supposed to be like, oh yeah, right? <laughs> Finally, after all these years, the sequel to Day of the Dead that I wanted. Yeah, mm-hmm. and when it slams down like that, it's just like nothing. No reaction at all. Same thing to the ending. For as light and as goofy as the sort of adventure with these bumbling guys is for the most part of this movie's running time, when the end gets all dark, I feel nothing. Mm-hmm. By implication, at the end of Day of the Dead 2, the zombies are about to take over the world. Which is interesting, because in Day of the Dead, they'd already taken over the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't That's even, just uh... based on if you've watched the original Day of the Dead. One of the reasons I'm glad we're doing this one today is that in the previous episode, we just reviewed the remake of Day of the Dead. And if this has to be a sequel to Day of the Dead, let this be a sequel to the remake of Day of the Dead. Which is interesting trivia because it was made three or four years before the remake. (laughs) (laughs) Golly, I'm I'm so confused, man. My nose is bleeding. Um, You can't even say that this is a prequel to Day of the Dead. No. It's just totally unrelated. Um, It's just called Day of the Dead. God damn it. (laughs) So, yeah, dialogue is not so bad. But, yeah, there's some pretty terrible plot problems in this movie. Um... Uh, first of which, uh, there's that call to Homeland Security that the doctor in charge of the place makes. He realizes there's something going on, so he calls Homeland Security. And then what happens? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Not a Just thing. A, a, like, they couldn't even bother to remove that scene. Yeah. 
they knew it wasn't going to go anywhere. They edited the movie. <laughs> uh, next, uh, Jerry. <laughs> Our exposition machine who shows up to deliver vital information and then dies. That is exactly what he is. He shows up and he delivers his lines with this kind of intensity, this sort of, this, he's always kind of shouting just like this. You have to believe me. You're in terrible danger. That's why I came here to this place where if you breathe in the infection, you get turned into a zombie. Why am I here? Like, really, any of you could change at any time and attack me. Oh dear, I'm being attacked. <laughs> but no, he, he knew that even breathing it, this shit in would, would kill him. And yet he's there. To... And that's also this really horribly kept secret. If this is supposed to be some like uh, super secret bacterial infected design by scientists, right? You think they're people in the know. But nobody seems to know about it except for this one mad scientist who was working at the building. And Jerry, because his daddy <laughs> was the guy who lost the thermos. And he's been spending his entire life waiting for this day so that he could die, I guess. Yes, yeah. Because <laughs> that's what happens pretty much as soon as he gets there. Yeah. Um, There's other things if you want to look at just from a filmmaking standpoint. Check how many times you can see a shadow on the wall of a boom. Or when they pass by the... Uh, <laughs> glass on the doors there's a whole bunch of scenes where they pan down hallways and when they pass the glass window you can actually see reflections of the fucking camera in some of these shots like you cut around that you you, you notice them in editing and then you try and cut around them or else if if you can't cut around them you make it quick and hopefully nobody will notice right mm -hmm. the, their heart's not in it and two people are directing this movie they got two heads working on this and that's why I figure this is just a, a cold fish business made movie. And that's what really makes me hate it, you know? It, the fact that, you know, I would love to be in even a modestly budgeted horror movie. Even a really low budget, micro budget horror movie, I would be happy to be participating in it. I would be excited to be there. And these people, I just don't think anyone was excited to be there. I think they just were wanting to make money. And they knew that the Larrys of the world would be suckers and swim up the chummed waters and put down their money. And I fucking did. And I'm fucking angry about it. Like I'm they, these guys are flagged. Like they like I said, they've they've claimed the creep show franchise and they've claimed the property of Day of the Dead. So those properties are dead to me now. And if they manage to get a hold of Reanimator or something else, I just instantly know, okay, they're gonna fuck it up. They don't give a shit about the original. And I think that's the deep fatal flaw of Day of the Dead 2 Contagion. It didn't give a shit about its original. Openly. Mm -hmm. So how am I supposed to give a shit about it? Yep. You got played, man. Did you notice the scene when the zombies are actually uh, leaving the asylum, when they actually finally break out? Yes. There's a very strange directorial choice there to speed up the film. Yes. <laughs> because I guess the zombie walk was too slow for the director. And Which again leads credence to my theory that this is actually a sequel slash prequel to the remake of Day of the Dead. <laughs> because in the remake of Day of the Dead, they're super fast zombies and very computery. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think that's what it was because they were still kind of stumbling yeah. and stuff like that. Anyway, really reminded me of Benny Hill, honestly. <laughs> and really, like the previous episode, I tore a strip off of the remake 
of Day of the Dead. But by contrast, it is made to look like a masterpiece for this movie. I would rather watch the remake of Day of the Dead twice consecutively than watch this movie again once. So does that mean the creators of the Day of the Dead remake are going to remake Contagium? (laughs) God, maybe? It'll be better! (laughs) It couldn't be worse. Here we go. Are you fellas? It's him. Do we proceed? Yes. He is still only human. All of our lives, we have fought this war. Tonight, I believe we can end it. That's a nice trick. Huh. Upgrades. Mr. Anderson. Surprised to see me? Okay, so uh, I reviewed the original Matrix uh, with our mutual friend Paxton Francis. I heard the episode. uh, Very favorably. It came out in 1999, and I think as far as science fiction goes, it was kind of a game changer, both in the storytelling and in the sort of technical achievement of the movie. So, almost five years later, uh, out comes Matrix Reloaded, and... uh, there were rumblings a la, you know, George Lucas saying it was always planned to be three movies, it was always planned to be six movies, uh, that the Wachowski brothers did have a, a master plan. But as evidenced by the three subsequent movies, the Animatrix, Matrix Reloaded, and Matrix Revolutions, kind of don't get the feeling like they did have a master plan. Uh, and the fact that they admitted that basically they wrote one huge screenplay and then chopped it into pieces to make these three movies is very, very obvious. But I think it's most obvious in Matrix Reloaded. (laughs) Quite. We leave... uh, Well, I guess Matrix 1. Matrix 1, I'm sure you've all seen it. But Hacker Neo discovers that reality is an illusion uh, put into people's heads by machines that are using all of humanity as a power source. And he goes on to fulfill his role as the Chosen One and finally strike a blow against against the machines. The last we see of him, he's learned how to fly and he's going to go on and fulfill his, yeah. his uh, prophecy. By the end of the Matrix film, Neo is in the world of the Matrix essentially God. He cannot be defeated. He can do pretty much whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. And... They don't need to have a huge action centerpiece that shows him destroying the machines after that, right? Because once he's the one, the one is going to fulfill the prophecy. Really, the story was, can we find the one? Because the one will bring us to peace. But wait! But wait. And that's the thing. I think that, you know, it's just way more interesting becoming the one than it is being the one. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem that they found out as screenwriters right away approaching the sequel. So, as it turns out, he's not as much the one as we thought. (laughs) Okay, here's the setup, see. Uh, Yes, it's six months later, and I guess Neo hasn't destroyed the Matrix yet. No. Uh, Everyone's checking their watches, wondering why he hasn't done that. But anyway... he's having sex with his new girlfriend. That's true. He and Trinity are lovers, but he keeps having these recurring nightmares about her dying. And at the same time, the machines outside of the Matrix are tunneling downward to destroy the uh, 
city of Zion, which the is last the human resistance place. Yeah. That's right. And the only way that they can save Zion is by shutting down the Matrix. But to shut down the Matrix, they have to get the Key Master. The Key Master is a rogue program that's being held captive by another rogue program called the Merovingian. Who's married to another rogue program called Persephone. Yes, and they, well, the Merovingian has a small army of goons. And uh, let's not forget the Matrix guys are trying to stop them. And Agent Smith, Agent Smith, the the bad guy, uh, the personification of the Matrix from the first movie, is still lurking out there and corrupting programs and humans alike and making seemingly infinite copies of himself. Yes, apparently there is a whole separate fan theory on the Matrix that the actual one is not Neo; it's actually Agent Smith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, this movie has enough rabbit holes in it that that might well actually work. <laughs> but uh... Well, it, it's just adding another layer of convolution to, to this. And I think this is the one of the main problems here it's, uh, with this movie. It's, I, it, I'm reminded of when I try to put one more chip bag in my garbage can. And yes. the garbage can is already goddamn full of garbage. Yeah. And it's just not going to work. And so, whatever, falls out the side. There's too much in this movie. And yet not enough, because there's not a story here. Because, and this is a, a middle child sil- syndrome, right? It's the middle chapter. So there is, you know, you can't build to it an apex climax. But basically, at the end of this movie, Trinity dies but doesn't, right? Yeah. And that's basically like the first movie, Neo dies but doesn't. <laughs> And then in the third movie, they'll both die, but for real. <laughs> but do they? <laughs> I think, yeah, if, I think getting the key master back from the Merovingian would have been movie enough, honestly. Yeah. <clears throat> they didn't need to throw in Agent Smith. Why not save him for the third movie? Yeah, Agent Smith really should have been, like, I think absent almost entirely, or maybe just until the end of the movie. Then we could be focused more on, you know, however silly this this world of plot is. Because he really doesn't do anything in this movie, other than cause ridiculous fights. Yeah. And, yeah, the fights. The fights. Okay, the first movie definitely did deserve a lot of credit for, you know, the bullet time effects and just how they handled the action. The action scenes in the second one are impressive sometimes, but sometimes... Again, I go back to the video game, particularly shots of Keanu Reeves in his cape-like jacket. It's kind of like a cassock. I don't know, but like, I'm looking at a cartoon. I'm watching a Pixar movie for a little while there, Mm -hmm. and unabashedly, like, the illusion is not there, right? And uh, I was fooled for a lot of the shots in the original movie, but not as much in the second. And also in the original movie, the action set pieces had emotional weight behind them, whereas in this movie, like... He goes to meet the Oracle, but he has to fight a guy before he meets the Oracle. That's a ter- particularly terrible fight because it's it's pointless. pointless. It's like uh, the the Wachowski brothers thought, okay, we've had way too much talking, and we're, we if we don't have a fight, we're going to lose people. So yeah. we need a fight. Yeah. And so and there's this weird this desperation guy. to you know we've got millions of dollars, we better keep you entertained, but we also got to be super smart, and we also got to try and top the Matrix, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's not working. The, the other problem I found with the fights, too, and maybe you can uh, weigh in on this, is that they didn't seem like fights um, when we saw people doing their, their stunts in martial arts. It seemed like 
more like dancing honestly like a series very, of very choreographed yes highly highly choreographed moves and when people get get hit in this movie it doesn't seem like anybody's in pain they yeah. just kind of get shoved back a little bit and then until go, the plot tells you that this is time for them to get hurt yeah i've always had an issue because morpheus takes out one of the enhanced agents in this movie mm-hmm. and they're supposed to be bigger and tougher than the agents he fought five months ago and the agent he fought five months ago, who was weaker than this agent, kicked his ass <laughs> brutally, right? Yep. Get your, get your cosmology straight, guys. I think another thing that really hit the Matrix Reloaded uh, is that they were sort of hurt by the success of the first movie. The style of it, you know, everybody with the leather and the black glasses. We had five years of that all over popular culture. So when we come back to Matrix Reloaded, <laughs> it's not fresh and new anymore. And then I keep asking myself, you guys are living in a city underground. Why is everyone wearing fucking sunglasses? <laughs> and in the first movie, when they were in the Matrix, it made sense that they looked super cool and super styling because they were projecting sort of the hyper cool image of themselves into the Matrix. But when you're in Zion, it's got to be gritty, dirty, and real. And they fucked that up completely. When we first see Zion, which is one of the first scenes in the movie, it's this crazy fucking rave orgy that's going on. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a rock video. It, it, it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like real people in the real world. And this is supposed to be the last pocket of real humanity, right? Mm-hmm. And that being the case, if I have to choose between that and the Matrix... <laughs> Was it the blue pill you take? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I think the Matrix is a better deal, frankly. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, I understand people showing up in this movie. Like, uh, Harold Perrin, who quit Oz to be in this movie. And so fans of the show Oz were shocked to see the narrator, the one safe character in that bloodthirsty show, got killed off. That's because of the Matrix. And I can understand, you know, you get offered a part in the Matrix movie, it's going to be a high-profile role, it's going to be good for your career, and I'm sure it was. But it's just not a good movie. Mm. We um, talked about the fights and how tacked on they were. Um, But we also talked about the dialogue and the smarts. And this is another aspect of this movie that really, really hurts. Because I can see the noble intentions of the filmmakers here. They want to ask these questions like, what is power? What is control? These, these are questions that are asked in the movie. And there are these long, very long sequences of philosophical dialogue. But this is an action movie. Yeah. And they just don't fit, particularly when the action scenes are just tacked in there like that. And they're, yeah, they're, they're, it's just dialogue. It's just reasserting the theme through dialogue. They're asking questions, but they're not offering any answers. There's this whole scene where Neo meets, I can't remember the name of the actor, but this old wizened fellow who lives beneath the city of Zion. And they have this huge conversation about how the machines actually run the city. Even Zion is controlled by the machines, and we need the machines as much as the machines need us. And yeah, we get it. You don't actually have to implicitly say, we need the machines as much as the machines need us. This is sort of the moral <laughs> of the story. This is, like, the point. Mm-hmm. Trust us to get the point of the movie, and they don't. And it's weird. If you're going to just ask all these philosophical questions or read basic, you know, dummy's guide to philosophy, that's fine. But if you don't even pretend to try to answer any of these questions, it's, it's sort of the intellectual version of someone who's trying to be funny and failing. It's like they're trying to be smart and failing. 
Sounds like me most of the time. Yeah, well, <laughs> but you're not getting paid, you know, $25 million or whatever. The, uh, the, oh, yeah, that makes me feel better. Yeah. yeah. If you were getting paid to make a super smart science fiction movie, and this is what you came up with, I would actually be really polite to your face. But quietly, I would be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> so... The Agent Smith fights are a real problem, too. Yeah. Like You mentioned the, the computer effects being unconvincing in this one. They're particularly bad when all the Agent Smiths are piling onto Neo. <clears throat> Plus, a lot of the actors, or I should say the, the stunt people they get to be Agent Smith, don't look anything like him. <laughs> and you also have the question, why isn't Neo just flying through all these Agent Smiths and killing them like he did at the end of the first movie? Well, and he kind of does. He gets, like, a little bit overwhelmed, but then, you know, he breaks out of a pile of Agent Smiths and flies away. Mm-hmm. But he, he doesn't fly God. through them. He doesn't kill them. Yeah, but, but he remains God. All of those fights are pointless. Neo can't be killed in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. They're irritating is what yeah. they are. I, I didn't find the, this sense of rising action yeah. when more and more Smiths came in. I, I felt irritated. And I think this is the essence of this Matrix movie, is irritation. Yeah. Um, I was irritated by so many aspects of this uh, movie, not just Agent Smith. I thought the f- over-exaggerated Frenchness of the Merovingian yes. to be so irritating. Oh. Oh. And then his wife, Persephone, wanting to kiss Neo because yes. she wants to know what affection is. Yes. So irritating. <laughs> the goons are irritating, especially those two twins. British albino twins who are so evil. Yes, we are getting annoyed. Yes, we certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> I-, I thought they were just proxies for the audience. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, that's the that's the essence of this movie for me. Um, I mean, the it's fights... hard to deny the talent that went into the movie. It's like I, I make fun of Keanu Reeves, but I mean, he learned to do all this highly choreographed stuff. It wasn't always just a computer image. Mm-hmm. People put blood, sweat, and tears into this movie, and I understand trying to follow up the Matrix was not going to be an easy feat. But they took almost five years to get this job done, and it stings. There's got to be something good we can say about this. It um, does. It's a sound off movie. Like it's one of these movies where you could probably turn the sound off and just sort of look at the pretty lights if you wanted to. Okay. But um, I don't know. I think that the Matrix stands so well by itself that the best case scenario is to just ignore the Matrix sequels. But much like Jaws, you know, we get obsessed with Jaws. We love watching Jaws. We watch it so much. It's like. Uh, we need to watch Jaws 2, because it's not as bad as we remember it. And then we watch it, and then we're like, Ugh. no, we should just keep watching Jaws. And that's what I say when I'm talking about Matrix Reloaded. Just watch The Matrix again. <laughs> mm, yep, it's a, it's a mistake. Um, it, it was a terrible mistake having rewatched this for this podcast. I should have just pretended that I'd seen it. Yeah. But then, no, that wouldn't have worked, because I didn't remember a thing about it, because it's so unmemorable. <laughs> Anyway, it's done now. I don't think I have to do it again. You don't know what you're dealing with. This time, it's open season on all of us. Danny Glover, Gary Busey, Ruben Blades, Maria Conchita Alonso, Bill Paxton. Predator 2. Hunting season opens again this Christmas. Okay, so Predator 2. 
here's the thing. Here's my theory. Just going right out the gate. Mm -hmm. I think that this is the quintessential 1990 movie in a lot of ways because mm -hmm. it's got one foot really, really deeply steeped in the 80s and then it's got another foot sort of into the, into the 90s. But they, they didn't know what the 90s were yet. And uh, they did this really, I think, foolhardy thing in the movie and they were projecting what the future would be like very short form. It's made in 1990, it's set in 1997, and they're showing us this future world. And whenever you do that, whenever you set your movie just a few years into the future, a la Strange Days or Demolition Man, it almost guarantees you your movie's going to age like milk, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's kind of like a scared... Uh... 1990 conservatives idea of what Los Angeles is going to be like, <clears throat> you know, just a few years down the road, the Rodney King riots are going to be happening every day, man. Yes. So although it's only been three years after they made Predator, according to the movie, 10 years has gone by. And in the uh, heat wave that's going through a, a crime ridden Los Angeles, uh, a predator has come to do some hunting. And uh, right away, first thing out the gate, we see the Predator watching this shootout take place and spotting his, his prey. And this time, instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger, we have Danny Glover. The best cop in L.A. <laughs> well, the craziest cop in L.A. Okay, fair and this is why And this is why I say it's still steeped in the 80s sort of idea of cop movies, right? Because he's a badass cop who doesn't follow any of the rules, doesn't listen to reason, doesn't follow orders, and shoots people and gets shit done. He has, he's he does a crazy have person. <laughs> yeah. He's a crazy person. <laughs> he does have that conversation with his chief that's like, you're out of line, Harrigan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this is something that's totally at home in the 80s movie. Everybody would not bat an eye at us. This is like, that's fine. But in the 90s, they start drifting away from that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> Predator 2. <laughs> There's something kind of comforting in the stereotypes that we see in this movie um basically the well the setting itself is so strange um it's the futuristic la and they they managed to make some weird props for the handguns they've yeah. got weird barrels but that's about as futuristic as the technology gets yeah. whenever there's exterior scenes all the cars are from the 70s or they're classic cars so Ruben Glade seems to have a gadget that he's pressing against the bullet holes in the wall I don't know what that mm. was supposedly doing but there was a few gadgets that they added but and apparently for the, the most part 1997 <laughs> is just 1990 but so much worse and much more racist yes and in, in 1997 also flashlights when they go across your face go right yes that's how you know it's their futuristic flashlights well, i remember when this was coming out i was kind of excited about it i was a fan of the predator movie uh stephen hopkins was an up-and-coming newbie director uh, he did Nightmare on Elm Street 5, which is a very well-made bad movie. <laughs> but you could understand how someone would look at that movie and say, you know, this guy might have some skills. And uh, wasn't a completely awful choice for a director to do this movie. Nobody knew he was going to make Judgment Night and Ghost in the Darkness yet. <laughs> Those were all things down, down the future. <laughs> it was also written by the same screenwriting team that wrote the original. So that gave me hope as well. 
basically all they did was sort of move the predator from the jungle to an urban jungle. For, right. And uh, Alan Silvestri comes back to do the music as well. So uh, in that movie and Predator 2, it sounds yeah. kind of like Roger Rabbit. The score by itself almost makes the movie good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually do think the Predator score is super bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we're going to get introduced to all of our 80s cop archetypes. we got Bill Paxton playing the hot shot. You know, I'm going to show everybody how it's done. Reuben Blades is the best buddy partner. we Ma- got the tough-as-nails Latino lady cop. Yeah, Marina yeah. Conchita Alonso. She was, I think this was the last movie she was allowed to be in, because uh, she was only supposed to be allowed around in the 80s, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened. It seemed to me when I was growing up, she was in every movie, and then all of a sudden, after Predator 2, gone. <laughs> and then you got Danny Glover, who, I have to say this, I love Danny Glover as an action hero. Oh, yeah. He is, he's got, he delivers these lines so well. Uh, he's, it's got this intensity. He's, he's saying his lines, like, without abandon. But he's, he's still got this like bit of exasperation mm-hmm. that he had from the Lethal Weapon movies. He knows the score because he's done two of the four Lethal Weapon movies at this point. And yeah. uh, I think he's a really good actor, and I think that he does sell the action well. What I didn't quite understand is why he, like, he was selected by the Predator. In the first movie, Schwarzenegger was the biggest and strongest, and clearly the guy calling the shots in the group. And that's why you got the feeling that he was selected. Basically, he sees Danny, the Predator sees Danny Glover drive a car into a, a shootout and, and rescue a couple people and figures, that's the guy. That's the guy I want to have his skull over by fireplace for some reason. Um, I didn't understand why as so clearly as why he was selected. And when it came down to the physical fight confrontation between the Predator and Danny Glover, it seemed like a tougher sell that Danny Glover was going to be able to do any real physical damage to this thing. That's true. Danny Glover did have a, a, a techno saw yes. on his side for that fight, though. Yeah. Um, do you think, just a, a theory here, do you think Mel Gibson was asked to do this <laughs> role and he wouldn't do it or couldn't do it, and so they're like, oh, well, we're trying to do Predator meets Lethal Weapon, so let's get Danny Glover. See how it works out. My guess is that the Danny Glover was probably their first ask. I think they probably wanted a high-profile, you know, African-American actor trying to make up for how the fact that most of the bad guys are going to be the various <laughs> different uh, ethnicities. Uh, they're going to center it uh, with a black character. That, that's fine. It's, uh, it's not here nor there. My problem with Hardigan or Harrigan? What's Harrigan. Harrigan. Thank you. You're out of line, Harrigan. He's crazy. Yes. He is a crazy person. <laughs> Now, Gary Busey, Gary Buckteeth Crazy Eyes Busey, yes. is leading a team who's trying to co- catch this predator. And instead of telling, you know, these hothead police officers that he's trying to catch a predator, he's being really secretive about it in the way that movie government guys are. But mm-hmm. Which is understandable, because... <laughs> yeah, because... Uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> like, Harrigan is told repeatedly, you know, if you cross this guy, it's going to hurt your career, and it might hurt you. Gary Busey even says, the next time you get in my way, you're going to disappear. And this does not, in any way, like, if you, the way to get anything done with the Danny Glover character is to tell him not to do something. You tell him not to do something, he will do it. And I don't know if they're saying that you need a cop this crazy to fight in a world that is as crazy as this is, but like I say, it does feel like a throwback to the 80s, right? For sure. And uh, I think that, you know, 
you could do an alternate cut of this movie where the predator doesn't exist. This is all there again. <laughs> <laughs> It's just an unreliable narrator, you know? Yeah. Gary Busey's trying to figure out this creature that's killing people, but the creature that's killing people is Danny Glover. Watch the movie again and tell me if I'm crazy. I'm going to have to do that. Give me the movie after we're done the review. The director confessed that they were doing this movie at a dead run, that he was still editing the movie within, like, days of it being printed and sent off to the theaters. Okay. And that if he had to do again, there are things that he would do differently. And a lot of it has to do with the third act. And I, I kind of get that. There is something really sloppy and crazy about this fight. That it starts in a meat house, or in a, a, a slaughterhouse. Yes. And then up onto the roof, and then into an apartment building, and then into an elevator shaft, and then into a spaceship. And then the spaceship takes off from the sewer, or from under, like, the whole layout of the action is really, really vague to me. I didn't understand where I was 100% of the time. Well, yeah. How long had the Predators been down there? How come nobody had found this huge ship? And there was dozens of Predators on that ship. Like, what were they doing this whole they, time? <laughs> like, if the ship was there for thousands of years or whatever, were they just hanging out in the ship until this guy picked the guy down? Like, there's a lot of questions <laughs> to be asked about it. But what I will say is that the movie moves fast. And mm-hmm. it's, it's got an energy to it so that it is possible to sort of blur your eyes and let the stupidity get past you. It, and, and it'll get you through the movie. But when you look at Predator 1, I think there's a really fucking awesome action movie. When you look at Predator 2, you're looking at a movie that really wishes it was Predator 1. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> there's, um, I do have to also... I, I do like the little detail that after Danny Glover kills his Predator... And he is given a trophy yeah. by another predator, which is this old flintlock pistol. From the, or yeah, that's right. Which once again hints that the predators have been hunting on Earth for a very, very long time. Yeah, and that's really cool. I like, I like small bits yeah. of world building. That's great. And of course, there's the alien skeleton on the wall in the ship. Yeah. So planting seeds for alien versus predator, which would just disappoint us about ten years later. I don't know. <laughs> I think that this is one of the better of the Terrible Twos movies that we're talking about. I'm going to agree with you. <laughs> but it's not a good movie. <laughs> it's not a really recommend for, um, for me either. But, I mean, honestly, if, if you would be the sort of person that would get off on seeing Danny Glover be an action hero, like if, if this is the sort of thing that you're, you're a cult movie watcher, yeah. this is a pretty fun movie to watch because he's great. Uh, and there's just some so bad it's good elements to it. You know? Like yeah. I say, the, like Danny Glover is just pouring on the Danny Gloverness as, as deeply as he can. Um, back in the 1990, what's his name? Uh, Morton Downey Jr. was a relevant figure in in television. He was sort of like the early days of what would lead to Jerry Springer and Geraldo and those types of horrible TV shows. Mm-hmm. He plays a reporter, sort of in the backdrop of a lot of the scenes. And all that served to me was a reminder that, oh yeah, Morton Downey Jr. was a thing that existed. (laughs) And that when they made Predator in 1990, they thought that having him in the movie was somehow going to help them. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> he doesn't do anything in the movie either other than get punched. He gets punched. Yep. That's that's the role of the media in, in action movies of the 80s. Yes. <laughs> they get punched when they ask the wrong question at the wrong time. Yep. So I got one last thing I want to say. Go. And it's not necessarily about the movie. It's a diatribe. Okay. And it's about sound. You've heard me complain in the past about... Uh, recycled screams and stuff like that in, yep. in movies. Uh, well, I mentioned as well in this one that the flashlights make sound. As they wave past the camera. As they wave past the camera, I guess, because they're high tech. <laughs> and my problem with this sort of thing is that, well, okay, I hate it when you see a desert and you hear, red-tailed hawk. <laughs> yeah. I hate when you see a bald eagle, red-tailed hawk. Vulture, <laughs> I hate... When a blade gets brandished and he goes, ching! As it comes out. Yeah, well, even if it waves through the air, it'll, it'll ring. Yeah. And as if we're too dumb to know that, oh, oh, that's sharp. Oh, yeah. okay. You uh, can overdo your sound design. It is true. I hate that in that show Glee, in between every scene that happens in a school, you have to hear a school bell ring. Mm. And not just a school bell, an old-fashioned school bell from the 1950s. Well, oh, I so we know that, that we're... Glee. I don't watch Glee. <laughs> I just hear my wife watching it, and I hear that school bell go off like 20 times an episode, and it drives me crazy. And the problem is here that sound, for so many movies is not real like what we see on screen. What we see on screen is meant to be a realistic representation of something, but what we see with sound is that it is symbolic. It's We see a knife and it rings because we're just supposed to get this little audio cue that lets us know, okay, that's a sharp thing and it's we a can recognize knife. that. You can tell by the sound it's making. <laughs> exactly. And for those of us who are paying attention, it really takes us out of the movie. So... I just don't see any reason why you wouldn't have sound be realistic. It, it drives me crazy. End of diatribe. Diatribe allowed. I feel like in a way I've been too nice to this movie because I feel like it's sounding like a real positive review. This isn't a good movie. It's just that shit crazy. <laughs> it is a t uh, what the fuck movie for sure. All we have to do is accept his love and let him in your heart. And you can't run from him. <laughs> After the fall comes the rise. And he has great plans for you. He'll kill us all. He's coming for you. He loves you so much. No one can have you but him. We'll set you free. of him is still inside you. We will summon him. So there was this uh, very decent found footage movie called the, the Last Exorcism. I seem to recall you reviewing it yes. on your shows. It didn't rank particularly hard in that high in that set, but it was a pretty good set of movies, uh, and I, I am a fan of it. And I thought that even though people get tired out with found footage, they handled themselves very well. It was a two million dollar movie by found footage standards. That's pretty high budget, mm -hmm. but it did well and it way overperformed. 
That might be the problem, though, because it did so well that producer Eli Roth decided we need to do a sequel. And you shouldn't make a sequel to a movie called The Last Exorcism. And if you do, you probably shouldn't call it The Last Exorcism Part 2. I think legally they actually have to go back and change the name of all the copies of The Last Exorcism to The Penultimate Exorcism. (laughs) Exactly. Um, This movie did not do anywhere near as well as the first. Deservedly so. Deservedly so. Uh, It's directed by a Canadian fellow named Ed Gass Donnelly, and it was shot in New Orleans. And as uh, we've discussed in the past, when we reviewed Skeleton Key, I'm a big fan of that whole vibe and corner of the world, especially when played for creepiness. The whole voodoo culture, Cajun mystique, I'm into and in a way, uh, between liking the first movie and this New Orleans setting, I feel like this movie should have been most of the way to me liking it before I even sit down to watch it. So, why is The Last Exorcism Part 2 on this list, Jeremy? It's not just because it has a stupid title. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's discuss the first movie and, okay. then, and then this one. Spoilers so. for both movies. Yes, <laughs> which you probably should have learned by now. Yes. Uh, so the first movie is about a priest who wants to blow the lid off of phony exorcisms. Yeah. So he travels with his camera crew down to Louisiana to perform an exorcism. And before long, he realizes that the... Well, I guess actually it is a fair ways into the movie before he finally admits to himself yeah. <laughs> that this woman, or this girl, Nell, is actually possessed. And he performs a real exorcism on her at that point before he falls for the demon's lies and leaves for a time, and then comes back and discovers there's a, in the final scenes that there's a cult in the woods yes. performing a dark ritual on the just-born demon baby yeah. of this poor girl, Nell. And uh, the last thing we see of him is uh, bravely walking off towards the flames yeah. where he presumably meets his end and then his camera crew are slaughtered by the cult. Yeah. So basically at the end of that movie, we don't know what's happened to Nell, but certainly nothing good. And for me, the big twist of the movie was not that everybody died because that happens in most found footage movies. It was the entire community that had conspired, that had been in there. Basically mm-hmm. everybody except for... Uh, except for Nell and her father. Yes. That we encounter are part of this evil cult. Mm-hmm. So, so she didn't have a safe haven. The reason, you know, the reason that she and her father were super paranoid is because they should have been super paranoid. Yes, even her brother. Yeah, even was, her brother you know, was in on it. Uh, so, yeah, that that was the first movie, and it really worked on me. I did like it. Unfortunately, it ranked like fourth in that list, but yeah. still, I'm, I say watch it. Definitely do not let ex- less exorcism to... Stay in your opinion of Last Exorcism 1. So the, the, I think the, the first um, significant image we see in Last Exorcism Part 2 is the camera lying in the grass. Yeah. And this symbolizes the shift from found footage to regular filmmaking. Yeah. We're going to abandon that aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it kind of abandons anything that was original and good about the first movie, doesn't it? Well, that's the thing. We see a lot of exorcism movies. The sort of idea of someone laying down and writhing while weird voices come out of them and they levitate. Very, very familiar. We've seen it before. So yes, having it through the lens of the forced perspective helped it a lot. I also think it was just a really smart script for the most part. Very subtle. I think that as good as... uh, 
the actress who plays Nell and her name, which I'm about to say, is Ashley Bell. Yes. And I think she is really good. Actually, bordering on amazing. I do think that when you're playing a possessed role, it gives you license to go as big as you want. But mm-hmm. between her body bands and what she does, I think she's really good at it. Mm-hmm. So I understand you definitely want to bring her back for this new second movie. Yes. But I think it's a mistake making Nell the main character. Because Nell doesn't really do a lot of active things to help herself. Nell suffers, and people come and try to help her, and she asks for help, but she doesn't actively do a lot. We watch Mm. a sweet, tearful, innocent little girl basically experiencing the big city for the first time, and people to the left and right are always trying to help her, and most of them end up getting killed for their trouble. Yes. The the action finds Nell being put into a halfway house, and for Act 1, she starts feeling like a, a normal person again and uh, removing herself from this enforced cloister that she was in. And she doesn't seem to have any memory or clear memory of what happened. She her. starts thinking she wasn't possessed. Yeah. And she gets a job and finds a boy that likes her. And then basically the movie from there doesn't have much of a plot except that she starts seeing the cultists lurking around and getting weird phone calls and... It's a uh, series of sometimes spooky but mostly boring events. Yes. I have huge problems with the scares in this movie because so many of them are just... Quick, show one second of the previous more scary movie and a scary noise and that's our jump scare. Yeah. About halfway through the movie she becomes an internet sensation because presumably the original footage has been put on YouTube or whatever. And yes, recut by the cult because we see the camera changing angles as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird because I want to like the movie and like I said, uh, I think you can make a spooky ghost movie in New Orleans. In fact, part of me thinks that's what that city was built for. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I also think there's an inevit- inevitability to it in that I didn't know exactly how this movie was going to end, but I knew it wasn't going to be anything good. Mm-hmm. Like, if if they had ended it with all of a sudden, you know, Nell met a boyfriend and they fell in love and the power of their love destroyed the demon and they got married and lived happily ever after, it would seem, you know, to not at all match the tone or the story that they were telling the first time out. Yeah. And the fact that her entire family is dead and that this demon is still in her sort of says that she hasn't moved much further along <laughs> from her state in the first movie. Yep. There's no reason to invest in any of the characters to the left or right of her. <laughs> and she herself, as much as I do think she's a good actress, as a character, is not that interesting. Very boring character. It's a problem. It is. Um, I, had, I have some... I have tough times thinking of anything positive to say about this movie. <laughs> the best I can think of is I, I like how it uh, how the exorcism goes. Yeah. I like <clears throat> that once they get Nell on the table and strap her down and attempt to exorcise her. The second it doesn't look like it's going well. It doesn't work, and they decide to kill her with a morphine overdose. Yes. That's a neat angle. Yeah, and that these people that were, quote, protecting Nell, you know, we're fully real willing to kill her if it means to stop this apocalyptic event from taking place. Yes. Which makes sense. But mm-hmm. that also just says to me, if the world is at stake, 
Someone just fucking shoot now. As soon as you see her, just put a Why spy on her? Why follow her around? Yes. If the end of the world is at stake, the heroic thing to do is to shoot Nell dead. In that respect, her dad was right in the first movie. <laughs> well, and her dad shows up again in this movie. And, and he's in or the... does he? Yeah. He's in the room with her. And he doesn't kill her, yeah. even though he decides to kill her later on. Why didn't he kill her in that first scene? But again, those scenes are all very, very questionable. Were they dreams? Were they visions? Did oh, okay. they happen? Only she sees her dad. Like, he seems to pop up and appear and disappear randomly. Yeah, but the cultists do that too. Well, here's my other question. Mm-hmm. And this is one of my things. Because I said I really liked in the first movie that all of the... The entire community was basically invested in this evil cult that wanted this to come to be. Mm-hmm. In New Orleans, we see the good guys and they play hardball. But you know who we don't see? The bad guys. Basically, Abalom is running the show all by himself. With a human statue, which was pretty cool, was yeah. part of the cult. I guess yeah. the the guy in the that follows her around Mardi Gras. Yeah. And the Mardi Gras sequence, generally, I thought was kind of cool. But uh, again, it was basically Nell wandering around with big eyes, looking at the rich atmosphere of Mardi Gras yeah lots of free uh, filmmaking to be done in that scene absolutely Um, also the girls in her halfway house right what the fuck were they in the movie for yeah particularly the one blonde girl who they always made a point of making her seem sinister yeah like I thought they were going to do this thing where she's part of the evil cult but (laughs) nope no (laughs) no the girls are just there to symbolize normalcy yeah and they get possessed at one point and then they die at the end that's that's all they're there for and paper thin paper thin then we might as well just go to the end yes let's do that um basically the prophecy is that this demon will bring about the end of the world if he can find a pure innocent to willingly accept the possession Yes. And now Lindley possessed the possession basically because she's about to die and she's terrified at the prospect of it. That's how I read it. Mm-hmm. It was pretty calming. Like, I didn't feel like she was won over. I felt she was backed into a corner and it was death or take the hand of this thing. So she did the survival instinct thing and reached her hand out. And consequently, everybody's going to die for this. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting. Like, I kind of got her obviously dispatching the people in the room because they were immediate threats. But the fact that she goes back to the halfway house and makes a point of killing all those people who are bending over backwards to be nice to her. It's pointless that she goes back there. Like, she's got, she's got apocalypse on her mind. Yeah. The only reason... Like, she's just got better things to do as a character. The yeah. only reason she would go back there is because the filmmakers say, well, everyone in the cast has got to die somehow. Yeah. And we don't really see it. We see the, the flames climb the stairs and go up into the room and we hear screaming. Yeah, but basically our entire supporting cast is just wiped out. And uh, again, if we'd liked them more, or we felt more generally about the movie, <laughs> it would have been somewhat impactful. This movie ends with the world coming to an end, and mm-hmm. I felt nothing. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> um, I also want to uh, shortlist um, a particular death for a. a, a uh, best unintentional laugh, Jerry, if possible. Okay. That dummy that gets thrown out of the, the second story window. <laughs> <laughs> He's just limp on his way down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was something weird about that kid who cuts his own throat, too. Mm-hmm. It's. 
there was just something about the scene. As soon as we saw him sitting on the bed there, even before I saw the knife, for some reason I was like, he's going to cut his throat. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was. Like I felt like I'd seen the movie before I'd seen the movie. Well, that's the whole atmosphere of the movie. We've seen this movie before. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I can't account for the uncanny prediction that it was going to be a, a slit throat in that case. Yeah. But, yeah. There's just something about it. <laughs> it's just like I, I felt like that's where that scene was going to go. Uh, seen this movie yeah. before, seen it done better. Yeah. Boring, um, wasted my life. And that's something that I want to emphasize because the way we're talking about it, we hit all these different plot points. It sounds like, well, you guys got your heads up your ass. This sounds like it would be cool. It's really, really boring. It's It's 90 <laughs> minutes, but like... When I looked at the time counter, I was like, really? That was 90 minutes? Because it really felt like it was two and a half hours long. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to like this movie. And that was the one. I thought that this might be one of the movies that we might have disagreed on. Not that I thought you would love it, but that you'd think maybe it wasn't worthy of a terrible two. But I was so pleasantly surprised by The Last Exorcism. Mm -hmm. And I was so unpleasantly surprised (laughs) by the sequel. Even even Nell's character kind of makes you want to like the movie just a little bit more because yeah. she is a very sweet character. But, but we've seen this movie before, like you mm-hmm. said. We know that she's sweet and innocent, but we also know this is going to end badly. Yeah. And so she sets the world on computer fire at yeah. the end. The end. Someone is coming back to Elm Street. He is not friendly. He is not patient. Kill for me. And he is not a welcome visitor. No! 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 But he has something terribly special for the new kid on the block. It started to happen again. Dad! I'm in trouble. You've had some scary dreams, okay? Help! Daddy can't help you now. There's something inside him. So I'm fairly secure in my heterosexuality. Um, but that said, it, when I was a little kid, I kind of went through my gay phase early. I was really into like He-Man action figures and like the Conan the Barbarian movies. Basically, muscly guys holding big swords really appealed to me when I was a little kid for some reason. Uh, so it surprises me that when I watched this movie in 1986 or 87, it came out in 85, but I probably cut up to it later on video, that it flew right past me that Freddy's Dead, or sorry, Freddy's Revenge, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, is clearly about a young man wrestling with his homosexuality. Now, <laughs> clearly, whether that's what you want out of a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, I mean, <laughs> we can discuss, but I don't think that's a glib statement. I really legitimately think that this movie is about a young man wrestling with his sexuality as much or more than it is about Freddy Krueger killing people. I believe the screenwriter has said as much, and I think that, uh, shoot, guy who plays Jesse. uh, Uh, Mark Patton. Mark Patton has also said as as much as well. Mark Patton is uh, an openly gay actor as well. Yes. That's the thing. You can look up video footage of the director, Jack Shoulder, who would go on to direct a minor 80s classic called The Hidden, um, talking earnestly, saying that we really had no idea while we were making this movie. I don't know if he was embarrassed by it or if he was just legitimately had his head in the sand, but this movie's incredibly gay. 
That's not a bad thing, necessarily. I'm not saying that this is a terrible two because the movie is incredibly gay, in quotation marks. But this movie is bizarre. And this movie is like... Obviously you say it's a cash grab because the sequel's got the number two behind it. But it's also a sequel that says, okay, A Nightmare on Elm Street brought to us a killer that can stalk us in our dreams. We have the entire dreamscape to work within where we can play out elaborate fantasy kill sequences or anything we can wish to imagine we can justify within this world. So why then the screenplay would concentrate on bringing Freddy into the real world seemed silly. It seemed like, let's turn Freddy into Michael Myers, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I guess it's the, it's the upping the ante or something like that, what they were going for, because it, he's scarier if he's in real life. I know. Yeah, it feels like they just didn't know what they had when they did part two. By the time they make part three, the people who made part three knew what they had. Part two is a really crazy what-the-fuck movie, and I don't think it's particularly scary, and I don't think it's a particularly good Nightmare on Elm Street movie, but... It is kind of amazing. <laughs> yes. Here's the, here's the gay allegory, because it is an allegory, uh, allegorical story. Um, the young kid, uh, he's a teenager, I should say. Jesse Jesse Walsh. moves uh, with his family into the house that Nancy lived in, in the original Nightmare. And before long, he starts having crazy dreams with Fred Krueger in them. Um, and Fred Krueger urges him, Kill for me! <laughs> and basically what Freddy represents is uh, this weird feeling that it would be like to be a, a homosexual in the 70s or 80s. I you can have imagine. urges that you're uncomfortable with. You have urges you're uncomfortable with. You feel like you're going crazy when you become a teenager because you're not like everybody else. And so this urge to kill is equated with the uh, urge to... I guess, have sex with men. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but in the 80s, that's that's the playing field that we're on, okay? <laughs> like, that that seems overly harsh, but yeah, they're comparing the act of having sex with someone who's the same sex, the same gender as you as being almost tantamount to murder, at least socially or in his mind. Yes. He can't talk to anybody about these weird impulses and what's happening to him because mm -hmm. it's just too bad. It's too icky. Yeah, and it the uh, urge to kill gets in the way of him having sex with his girlfriend yeah. and forces him to seek the help of his friend who he... Who actually says he went something along the lines of, "You were supposed to sleep with your girlfriend. You want to be here and sleep with me instead." Yeah. Well, it happens again and again in the movie <laughs> when uh, his love interest uh, Lisa, played by Kim Myers, says, "I love you, Jesse." <laughs> um, <laughs> she wants to be with him. She's doing everything but like just climbing him like a tree, right? <laughs> yeah, and he's constantly pushing her away and running over to this dude who this jock guy who they seem to have like some sort of weird tension between them. Yes. It seems almost like a bully relationship and yet they're always smiling at each other and have these ling lingering looks. and uh, when Wrestling get... each other with their pants down. Yeah. Or uh, <laughs> being forced to do push-ups together. Uh... Suggestive push-ups. <laughs> yes. um, and you know this 80s sensibility about gayness carries on right to the end as well. And yeah. we might as well go there now because um, it's a kiss from Lisa. Lisa actually kisses Freddy. And it's this loving relationship of a woman that finally defeats the gayness in the end. The Freddy, element is love, Jeremy. Huh. 
lest I forgotten. <laughs> so yes, Freddy melts like a burning wax candle and leaves a slightly charred Jesse ready for a relationship. Yeah. Or is it really over? <laughs> well, that's the thing, the whole rediscovery, where, where Jesse comes out the other side of this and he peels the charred visage off of himself and is reborn as the true Jesse. So Jesse and Lisa can go, I don't know, shopping together and they can <laughs> watch musicals, watch musicals yeah. and have a loveless marriage if that's what comes to because yeah. <laughs> now it's going to seem, it seems like we're hitting this really hard, the whole angle of this. But The like, movie hits it hard. The movie hits it hard. And like you said, the, the screenwriter said that he'd sort of intentionally put it in there, but it was meant to be subtle. It seems like every decision made by the production was focused on accenting this. People, again, involved will deny this, but the fact that both Jesse and his would-be boyfriend have pictures of men all over their rooms is interesting. Jesse <laughs> has a sign on his door that says, Absolutely no chicks allowed. Was that an accident? He's got a, a board game in his closet called Probe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it just catching all these little clues as you watch it m makes kind of you know a less than good horror movie it's kind of fun to watch yes. trying to find all of these things and it's not good it's not a good movie but there's scenes that in other movies would just be like exasperatingly bad like jesse dancing about his room and singing into his comb which yes. just makes me want to hide under my chair <laughs> <laughs> but like the, the fact that the movie could be that unself-aware, that Jesse could be unself-aware, it turns all the way around and becomes genuinely hilarious. Yes. The fact that they didn't mean it to be hilarious makes it kind of more hilarious. <laughs> um, and we, have, we haven't even talked about Coach Snyder, played by Marshall Bell. You may recognize that actor. He played uh, the host for Guato in uh, Total Recall, the short mm. Total Recall. And he was in Digstown. I actually really liked him. He's a good at character actor. And in this movie, he plays this hateful gay gym teacher who likes making the boys do push-ups and has one of the most bizarre... <laughs> First, he's literally attacked by balls. Yes, he's balls attacked Balls fly off shelves and then, and then attack him. He's rather nonplussed by the supernatural ball attack. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and he's strung up with a, a skip rope and, and dragged into the shower where Jesse is having a shower strung up and his bare ass is whipped repeatedly with towels and it's not played for laughs but it's pretty funny and this bizarre <laughs> it's hilarious. hilarious and uh we're to understand that freddy's doing this but if jesse was gonna kill this guy he could be like that's i guess how jesse would do it because he'd be really fixated on whipping the guy's ass with a towel <laughs> And this is another one of the issues with this movie, is it's never really clear at any point whether or not, when Freddy actually uses Jesse as a host, yeah. whether or not people are seeing Freddy, or whether or not they're seeing Jesse walking around with a set of claws on his hand. Yeah. It's not entirely clear. To, I think that it's, it's Jesse, basically. In Jesse's head, he's seeing Freddy. That's, again, the whole thing. Do you template. think so? Because or, or, well, when his friend sees Freddy, he... 
Well, he, until he Freddy is Freddy. born out of him. Yeah. In that actually pretty good special effects sequence. I will give it that. It's a great practical effect seeing Freddy he, tear his Emerge out yeah. of Jesse. Mm-hmm. But at that point, you know, he feels like Jesse should just be dead, and now Freddy's in the real world killing people. Yeah. And I have to emphasize how that doesn't work for me. Freddy running around that pool party killing people and making the pool boil for some reason. It is a betrayal of, of what Freddy was in the first movie and would become later in the yeah. franchise. And what can he do in the real world? Does he have the power to make shit explode for no reason, to make the water boil? Like, does he have the dream powers out in the real world now? Like, I, I, There's a vagueness to that. He that, seemed to have some sort of... Uh, uh, power over heat in this movie yeah. uh, was I don't think that was present in any of the later ones. Well, and we need to discuss the sequence with the birds. Oh yes, because <laughs> yes, the the generally the house that Freddie lived in was too hot. There's a problem with the thermostat. The, everybody's you know s- sweating while they sleep in the house. And there's this fucking bizarre sequence. Jesse's dad's played by character actor Clue Gallagher. Most people will recognize him from Return of the Living Dead. He's kind of a character. Uh, I don't know how they got him to do this movie. I, I like to think that he read the scene about the exploding bird. <laughs> this movie's for me. <laughs> but yes, there's a bizarre scene where they put a blanket over the bird cage so that the birds can sleep, and they make a point of saying the birds are sleeping and don't like the birds. So I guess we understand that the bird has a nightmare <laughs> and ends up flipping out and flying around the room and trying to attack you. It's like a butterfly trying to attack you. It just doesn't make sense how this bird would really actually manage to hurt anybody. <laughs> and the fact that it just fucking full-on explodes, and then everybody just says, huh, and goes on with the rest of their day. Like, that's a totally normal occurrence. Ah, shit like that happened. I don't... Well, there was the scene afterwards where Jesse's dad accuse, accuses him of having done it somehow. You used fireworks, young man. <laughs> But then, yes, they go on with their, their lives after that. What a bizarre scene. Yeah. The same thing with the... Certainly not scary. Yeah. Lisa going to find Jesse Freddy in the... Uh, whatever that fucking Ironworks place was. Yes. And it's guarded by these weird devil dogs. And there's this other <laughs> weird devil creature that eats a rat that she's scared of. What the fuck are these scenes doing? In the, what is happening? What is happening to this movie? Those, those, those dogs that roared like, like panthers and had human masks on just looked so sad. They were that. hilarious. <laughs> Again. It was not scary, but it, went, it was sort of funny to the point where it actually enhanced the experience for me. At that point, yes. And Lisa is just... I think you mentioned how irritating she is. Not only is she, a, you know, an irritating actress to see on screen with her. She's got this shrill delivery, this, yeah. this sort of needy whine, just generally through her performance. I think she's doing what's asked of her, mm-hmm. but it just it doesn't, it doesn't make me want to spend time with her. She's another character that's just a symbol, basically. Yeah. She does whatever the screenplay is demanded of her. She, you know... Why does she love Jesse? Why does she love Jesse? She he doesn't seem to like her very much, and he treats her like shit. Yeah. And yet she follows this clearly supernatural trail to the uh, to the ironworks or wherever this place was, <laughs> and kisses Freddy Krueger, <laughs> kisses him. Yeah. Even though you know, when every time she sees a rat, she screams and can't yeah. handle it. She's man. She manages to kiss Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Symbolic, just throwaway character. <laughs> the movie's sort of bookended with two sequences involving a bus. 
Mm-hmm. And really, in the way the first one, I mean, within the the boundaries of a 1985 horror movie, it's like, oh, this is a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They're doing this whole different landscape, and the 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 bus is teetering on a rocky pillar over lava. And he, while the, that is happening, he's having a fight with Freddy on this bus. In a way, it sort of gave me promise of quite the spectacle to come. Now we got a spectacle. <laughs> it's not what we anticipated, and it was nothing close to that whole crazy dream sequence thing, which is fairly cool concept, fairly well executed. And then we come full round to the end of the movie, where we're on another bus scene, and Freddy just erupts from another character's chest for some reason. Yes. It, it, when when my friend Scott and I reviewed the original Nightmare on Elm Street, we both had real problems with the third act of the movie. This, it's a little mushy. We're not exactly sure what we're supposed to take or how we're supposed to take it. But the movie had been good enough, and it had been a good enough fantasy horror movie by that point, that we were willing to give it a thumbs up despite this ending, right? Yes. Freddy... Nightmare on Elm Street, I keep on wanting to say Freddy 2. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is a weird one for me because I have a lot of bad things to say about it, but I have a smile on my face oh, when I too. watch it. I love that conversation they're having in that final bus scene where Lisa's, Lisa's friend is like, great party last night, Lisa. And Lisa's like, you know, her response is like, oh my God, that was like so embarrassing yeah, when, when Freddy came and... friends got killed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Jesse seems to be completely over uh, Ron's death. The night before, he was completely ruined by it. Yes. <laughs> Today but no, he's going back to back school. Back to school for you. <laughs> it's it's these, these things that make this movie actually kind of an enjoyable watch, despite yeah. the fact that it's a pretty low-quality movie. And like you were saying, everybody involved in making this movie, they were professional filmmakers and they were earnestly trying to make a scary Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And they did fail. Like, they, they failed. But I don't know. This movie's going to rank higher than me. <laughs> on August 28th, evil is here. It's walking amongst us. Michael is more evolved. Rob Zombie. I'm not strong enough. Completes his extreme vision of a terrifying legend. Kill her, baby. Uh, I've been on record as saying in the past on this podcast that I have respect and yet am frustrated with Rob Zombie as a director. I've never been much to do with him as a musician, particularly. But as a director, I don't think he's untalented. He makes movies that definitely have a very specific look and feel. I can tell I'm watching a Rob Zombie joint. Definitely. And uh, he's got his own aesthetic, and that's a really good thing to have. And, you know, be able to really get the images in your head on screen successfully. He, he can achieve that. I think that we have a different t- set of tastes, though. Whereas he really seems to love, like I've said in the past, the sort of Quentin Tarantino, redneck sort of vibe. Uh, and the sort of torture porn, vicious, kind of brutal violence. Uh, that's more his, his wheel box. I like horror movies, especially this type of horror movie, to have a little bit of fun to it. I don't know what you're going to have to say about Halloween 2, but I have a hard time describing it as fun. <laughs> well, let's let's just say that um, I had a prejudice against Rob Zombie going into this. This is actually my, actually my first Rob Zombie movie. This is a good entry um, point, actually. Yeah? 
Well, I believed before this, you know, based on his music and his name that and the kind of projects he did, that he was just a splatterfest guy who liked torture porn and stuff like that. But um, he's not a hack. He's talented. Yeah. And there's that. Um, secondly, um, comparing this to say a, a slasher movie from the '80s, what makes Rob Zombie's kills different is they are painful. Yeah. We see not just it, it, it not just someone dies. That's 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 what it would be in the '80s. Here we see them dying horribly. We see the knife going in, and we see Michael Myers yanking it out because he stabbed it in so deep yeah. we see horrible mental suffering for the people that he's killing yeah um he's definitely a student of torture porn mm-hmm. yes i think personally though i prefer this approach yeah. uh, because it it seems more human it gives the deaths more impact i guess it makes them more viscerally kind of disturbing yes um but yeah, it takes the fun out of them. You're right. In my preferred sort of Friday the 13th kill, the guy turns the corner, Jason's standing there with an axe, and then flack! And then we cut to the next scene, right? Yes. This is not how Rob Zombie does business. No, we see, we see the already wounded people crawling away from Michael Myers, and there's no escape for them. Yeah. And their death is, you know, it's not exactly sudden, is basically how I would put it. It's full of suffering. Uh, next, you already mentioned the Tarantino-ish dialogue, yeah. and I guess how I would define that is um, irrelevant conversations that don't push story, but are still they still enrich the movie by their presence, right? But they're full of pop culture references and F-bombs, mm-hmm. and again, I can't help but think of Tarantino there, yeah. right? And then the last thing, of course, which I really wasn't expecting, is that they do have pretentiousness these yeah. movies. I believe this is a movie as that I described to you as slowly crawling up its own ass. <laughs> <laughs> now, he made some brave choices here. And this is definitely a movie Rob Zombie's making for himself. you know, Because mm-hmm. I, I think that he probably knew that people were not going to like some of the decisions that he was making here. Uh, honestly. And I he, still don't know the significance of the white horses. He lays it out in <laughs> caption at the beginning, saying what the white horses are about. But every time they appeared on screen, they just baffled me. Yeah. And there is an awful lot of these scenes of art wankiness <laughs> that, that sort of happen in the in-between. Mm-hmm. I think it's an elaborate excuse to include his wife in the movie. She was, of course, killed in the first film. Yes. But if he's going to spend eight months making a movie, well, he better have his wife on set. Else, yeah. you know, he'll be sleeping on the couch. Got to bring back those dead characters. Yeah. Yep. Well, and, I, and people make fun of Cherry Moon Zombie. I actually don't think she's a terrible actress, necessarily. I think it's interesting that she doesn't seem to work outside of her husband's films. But I think that it's just that he bends over backwards to put her in this movie where she doesn't need to be there. Mm -hmm. This movie is just over two hours long, which for a slasher movie is pushing it. And you could have lost a lot of this sort of dream stuff and a lot of the sort of harried is our main character, uh, Laurie Strode, going crazy. Let's do the plot here. Jettison that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, the first movie is really kind of a an examination of what it would actually take to transform a child uh, into a serial killer. And 
it seems to make no bones about it and it walks this nice little razor line of not shoving your face in it saying this is what would have to happen you know right. you need to have the bad childhood you need to have the the horrible dad and you need to have the mom that has no time and blah 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 um after reaching adulthood michael myers in this movie goes in search of his sister whose name is laurie yes and at the end of the movie uh after you know a pretty significant body count laurie puts a gun to michael myers and shoots him yeah um the second movie it's about it's a year later i believe well Let's be fair. Uh, when we fu- when the movie finally starts, mm-hmm. about a half an hour into the movie, we're two years later. Two yes. years later. Okay. Yes, we'll we'll get to the <laughs> silliness of the first twenty minutes. So we catch up with Lori. She's living with her friend and her dad, the sheriff, with some pretty serious post traumatic stress disorder. Understandably. Um, and Michael Myers, his his body has disappeared. Dr. Loomis is trying to make a career of being a pretentious writer and is being repeatedly sacked in the balls by society (laughs) for taking advantage of of these horrible killings. And Michael Myers comes back on Halloween looking for his sister again. And going on a killing spree. Yes. Well, to start... To start. I think that in the first movie, as much as I had some problems with it, he did. He made some good decisions in the first movie. Mm-hmm. I actually really liked Malcolm McDowell in the first movie, and I do think that he's an actor who can kind of overdo it. <laughs> He'll overplay his hands sometimes. Ma- Malcolm McDowell playing Dr. Lewis. Dr. Loomis, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, just some of the decisions he made. The fact that Laurie's best friend, played by Daniel Harris, is brutally attacked in the first movie, but lives... That was kind of nice because mm-hmm. so rarely do we see that. You know, it's just the one survival girl. People can take a lot of damage and still survive. And I thought that was kind of a cool choice that they let her live. Mm-hmm. And I was like that instead of just being kind of a crazy guy like Donald Pleasance played him, there was a little bit more dimension to the Loomis character. Mm-hmm. So I kind of found it frustrating in the second movie where the Loomis character becomes completely unlikable, completely like a cartoon character. Mm-hmm. And uh, that they bring... Michael Myers back to finish the job on her best friend. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, Dr. There's Loomis... Like undid two of the best choices of the first movie. <laughs> Dr. Loomis, I believe, is also brought back from the dead. I th- the last thing we see of him in the first movie is Michael Myers pressing his thumbs into his skull. Yeah. I personally thought that Dr. Loomis was hilarious in this movie. <laughs> Like uh, he, he I wanted was, to skip all of his scenes. <clears throat> not <honestly>. me. <laughs> not me. I just I love that part when he when he's on the talk show and with he, Weird Al and Chris uh, Yeah. He's belittled there and, and he's just he, he goes between being pretentious and being phony so easily. Was <laughs> that I have never been so insulted in all my life. Yeah. Nonsense. Goodbye. Yeah. I also kind of noticed that the dumber he was, the more his accent seemed to disappear. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> this is like a, you know, you can say the stupidest thing in the world with a British, British accent and it sounds mm-hmm. smart. Yeah. <laughs> but again, I, I, I found that a di- disappointing choice that all of a sudden, yeah, this guy that we liked is a complete dick. And that Laurie, who survived the first movie and we understand why she's traumatized, mm-hmm. is just a completely unlikable character. 
She is shitty to everybody. And everybody <laughs> loves her unconditionally. And she is shitty to everybody. I think that kind of mirrors real life, though. If people are going through PTSD, you do yeah. just cut them slack. And everyone knew that's what was happening to her. There um, is a, a shrillness to Scout Taylor Compton. She plays Laurie Scrooge. Yes. She, she's a good screamer. I understand why she got the, the part. But there's a scene where she is hilarious because <laughs> she's seeing her psychiatrist who is played ironically by Margot Kidder, one of the craziest people in Hollywood. <laughs> but there's a scene where she's sort of pacing in that room talking about this fucked up Frankenstein monster that she saw in the street and having this sort of mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> just... It is kind of irritating. It, it was mm-hmm. shrill. It was shrill. And uh, it was another one of many scenes in the movie that I think could have not been there mm-hmm. and would have not lost anything. Yeah. And, yeah. The ending, of course, like much in this movie, is very perplexing. Um, yeah. It ends with... Uh, oh, let's go right to it. Michael Myers and Laurie and Dr. Loomis have all been killed. Yeah. Um, incidentally, um, one of the great things I love about this movie is that Dr. Loomis, or Lo- uh, Loomis, um, uh, becomes a hero again. As Just soon as the he, last second. As soon as he realizes that Michael Myers is back, that, that hero instinct he had from the first movie just kicks in. Yeah. And out, it's like his goes. life has no meaning unless Michael Myers exists. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so they're all dead, and a white horse is led by Sherry Lynn Zombie down a long hallway to, I guess, what is kind of an afterlife, and Laurie's sitting on the hospital bed. Smiling. Smiling. We see his devious smile. And reunited with her crazy family. Well, okay, if you want to try to unpack that, uh, Michael's crazy. We know this. So he sees his mother. He sees the horse. She has been through a traumatic event, and she is his sister. So... She starts seeing these things and being physically held back. Because of that, we either have to assume that Laurie is as crazy as her brother, or that Sherry Moon Zombie and the horse were as were real. They were ghosts that only they could see. I assume that either she was of those going things crazy. are very problematic. To me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hmm. And here's another question. I understood that she she stumbled out of the house in a daze, and that she picked up the knife and was walking towards the police mm-hmm. but she was not a threat like there was no reason for them to gun her down like that they didn't even show somebody pulling the trigger because there was no justification for it like it just seemed to happen <laughs> I actually think that was kind of real yeah. cops can do that they they are trained to uh, to kill and for some reason like they, they, they go for killing shots when maybe shooting an Mike Myers was down. He yep. was the killer, and they knew that. Right? I, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> just, there was no reason to shoot her. Maybe they had an inch trigger figure. Maybe there's some guy who was just eager. But they could have shown that. They could have made a character beat out of some fucking idiot, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, no, they just shoot her, and then they don't bother to explain it. it just death, roll credits. death by random cop. Yeah. yeah. And okay, so I already said I liked Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. Now, anyone who's seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest knows that Brad Dourif is an amazing actor. Yep. He doesn't often get good roles, but he can deliver when given the opportunity. Well, yeah, and most of the time he's, he's been typecast as these wormy guys yeah. who are disgusting and slimy, and like, you know, Wormtongue or Pieter DeVries from yeah. 
but here he's he's given a role as a good guy, and I really enjoyed seeing him in that. And when his daughter is killed, Daniel Harris, yeah. yes, we actually see his acting chops come out again. I, I really believed his tears and his reaction, and yeah. you know. Props to Brad Dourif. I think he's a great actor. There's a great scene between him and uh, Malcolm McDowell before that stupid ending. Yes. Where he puts a gun in his face and is like, I want to kill you so much. It's <laughs> <Yes. laughs> just like, really good job delivering that line. And mm-hmm. like, really, he's the tragic figure of these movies. All he's tried to do is protect his daughter and Laurie through these two movies. And it ends with both of them dead and him ruined, yeah. presumably. Generally speaking, he casts movies well, and this whole movie is filled with even like small supporting roles are either people from other horror movies, like uh, the nurse that operates on Laurie at the beginning was mm-hmm. the main character in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. I need to mention another really well-cast role here. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this is a fellow named Jeff Daniel Phillips, who plays the bouncer in the strip club. Okay, who takes the boots to the face. <laughs> Well, he he's a, in this movie. He's this. He tries to play this this badass sort of like hot shot. Yeah. But he's just too weird and dumb to pull it off, and so everybody makes fun of him. And you know, he goes outside to take out the trash and meets Michael Myers in the parking lot and tries to intimidate him. And throughout this scene. We see him discovering that his hotshot attitude is not working. At all. And we see him getting more and more terrified (laughs) (laughs) and still trying to pathetically keep it up. And, um, you know, he gets the boots to the face, yes. But I thought this role was so well executed that just based on these two little scenes, I want to see more of Mr. Jeff Daniel Phillips. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then that scene is followed problematically by... A fairly ugly sex scene and a, just a brutal murder sequence mm-hmm. where this trashy guy and this uh, stark naked woman are killed. Both two Halloween movies by Rob Zombie, both movies have a woman stark naked being brutally killed. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, both movies seem to li- exist in a world where everybody in that world would think that Rob Zombie was the coolest person ever. I don't know how old Lori's supposed to be, early 20s, I'm going to say, mm-hmm. but she's got Alice Cooper posters in her room. She and her friends go, hang out at a hippie bookstore with uh, Dr. Johnny Fever and rock out to very Rob Zombie-ish music, here's like a, yeah. no 20-year-old girls do nowadays. <laughs> well, here's, here's another interesting thing, too. Uh, the first Halloween movie had this conceit that it took place <clears throat> in 1970. And then 15 years later in 1985. Right. But in this, uh, in that movie, I never really bought that Laurie and her friends were 80s girls. They, no, they seem very yeah. contemporary. But in this Halloween 2, they seem to have just dropped that. Like, it's, it says it's 15 years later, but... They're Rob Zombie groupies. Yeah. There's, All of them. There's, um, Weird Al is on the show. Because he's, he's friends with Rob Zombie. Yeah. He doesn't have his beard or his, his stash like he had in the 80s. And he talks about Austin Powers. Yeah. And lots of little anachronisms like that keep showing up. Um, yeah. Some of the choices he makes, which are his choices to make, un- undercut the good things that are going on. And I do think the movie gets weighed down by the stupid. But I won't say that it's not well made. I mm-hmm. think it's very well made. Yeah. But I also think it's pretentious and stupid. Mm-hmm. And I also think that the uh, kills and, the, and the, the slasher movie that's in within it only barely hangs together. It's because of the flashy cast, casting and these sort of bright spots in the movie that you could sort of blur your eyes and say, yeah, this movie's working. Mm-hmm. But I really don't think it is working. Like, <laughs> uh, the the... 
two of Laurie's friends that get killed in a van at that party. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another sort of teleportation sequence because it seems like Michael Myers uh, kills those two people, Laurie's friends, at that party because he must know that they're Laurie's friends. Then he goes to Laurie's house and kills her her roommate mm-hmm. and the cop there and waits for Laurie there instead of just dealing with her. Like it, w- yeah. it didn't make sense that he would go to that party to kill those two people, but he did because we needed a death scene, right? And there's shit like that all throughout this movie, but it's done with such style and flash that you could easily miss it. And here's here's the thing. I think that we've come to the the climax of this review. <clears throat> I'm not at this huge a fan of slashers as you are. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I found the first Halloween to be kind of boring. For this movie, there was enough insane what-the-fuck shit in it <laughs> that I was way more entertained watching this movie even though I will acknowledge that it's maybe not as good a movie as the first one, uh, just in terms of making its, sense, as making sense <laughs> and its aesthetic, I was thoroughly entertained by it. This is not a disappointing sequel. It is better than the original. Discuss. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, now it is time that we talk about the first half an hour about this movie. Oh, okay. we've totally forgot. We totally forgot. This is a fucking problem. Yes, okay, okay. I will acknowledge this. <laughs> now, we have a pretty decent sequence of uh, them cleaning up the crime scene and uh, a, a car accident involving a cow and Michael Myers escaping, which would have been a fine sort of preamble sequence to the movie. Um, but then we cut to a hospital scene and some really graphic images of you know our characters being operated upon and waking up in the hospital. Now, you're not as familiar with the Halloween franchise as I am, so you probably maybe didn't know that Halloween 2, which was written by John Carpenter but not directed by him, takes place entirely in a hospital. I've never seen it. And it follows directly that same night. It's still Halloween night. Michael Myers gets up and follows Laurie to the hospital and starts killing people at the hospital. Oh, it makes so much more sense now. So now I'm watching this movie. Okay, well, they're following the template of the first Halloween movie. That's okay. But the sequences as they're happening don't seem to make any sense at all. Where are the police? Where are the rest of the people in the hospital? Why is there a pile of dead bodies in the basement? Like, there's so many things that are happening so quickly and early in the movie mm-hmm. that it's like, what the fuck is going on? And it all culminates into Mike Miles smashing through the wall of this uh, little kiosk and about to murder Laurie Strode, our main character. Another thing that you could totally accept because sequels will often kill the main character from the first movie before the next one gets going. Mm-hmm. The problem is, after all of this... Almost 26 minutes into this two-hour movie, she wakes up, and it was, it was all, all a dream. dream. Yeah. Fuck you. Okay. I'm not saying you can't have a dream sequence, but it should not be that long. <laughs> I, I agree in theory. <laughs> but you it could it. be It could be argued. It could be argued that... Not all of that is the dream, though. We could be we could say that the dream begins at the hospital. Right. So it might not all be the twenty six minute long dream. It was really jarring. Yes. It seemed to me, in retrospect, to be a really gutsy decision <laughs> that maybe didn't pay off, but I have to respect it. I also got to say, Octavia Spencer plays the first nurse who gets killed, the slash in her face, and then gets just brutally hyper stabbed by Michael. Yeah. She's an Oscar winning actress. Just a couple of years later, she won an Oscar for The Help. Seriously? Yep. <laughs> wow. That's, um, that's really cool. 
I mean, the fact that we've talked for like 22 minutes about the movie tells me that it's got some weight to it, but Maybe not enough just, for me to call it good. We should probably just stop. <laughs> Alright, we did it, brother. <laughs> we got through another six terrible twos. Yeah! <laughs> so how are you feeling about your list? Are you coming in strong and confident? Are we going six for six? Are we going zero for six? Where are you landing? <laughs> I've been so disappointed so many times. <laughs> You're not even going to guess. I don't even have a, a hope. I'm just going to uh, go with my list right away here and then get it done with. So number six, which I'm sure we match on, it's going to be Day of the Dead 2 Contagium. <laughs> Fuck that movie. Because it's, it, it's, it's an affront to the dignity of filmmaking. Um, number five is Matrix Reloaded, because it's one of the most irritating movies I've ever seen, <laughs> to be quite honest. Um, number four is Last Exorcism Part 2, um, because it was kind of a waste of time. <laughs> Number three is Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. It's a bad movie, but uh, picking out the gay clues is honestly a lot of fun. Uh, two is Predator 2. Uh, I, this is not a recommendation at all. It's just, yeah. But once again, if you like the camp bullshit, Danny Glover is great to watch as an action hero. Yeah. And then number one, which I think I tip my hand on, is uh, Halloween 2 for I, being better than the, the original. There it is. Well, damn it, we're so fucking close. Again, we are so fucking close. Okay. I almost want to cheat on you. <laughs> I haven't cheated yet. <laughs> All right. Maybe I can convince you to change, but let's hear your list. Okay, well, in sixth position, unsurprisingly, Day of the Dead to Contagium. If you're position in the movie industry is so business-minded that you'll just buy properties because you'll know they'll make money and you don't care about the product that you're releasing, you are emblematic of everything that's wrong with filmmaking. <laughs> that's what I'm going to say about Day of the Dead 2. It's emblematic of everything that is wrong with filmmaking. So yeah, it's at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And you know what's in the fifth place? <laughs> <laughs> Matrix fucking reloaded. You know why? Because it's long, it's boring considering all the flash and dash, and it had so much to live up to and such a rich world that the fact that The Matrix Reloaded is so low on the list with the movies that are this bad, like, that's saying something. <laughs> Damn uh, right. The, the Wachowski siblings recently did this movie, uh, Jupiter Ascending, and it bombed. And they had this big public outcry saying they're never going to be able to make big budget sci-fi anymore. Oh, Well, that's exactly what I said. You know what? They did a couple of low budget movies before they did The Matrix, you know? And uh, they were well made and competent and they weren't $100 million movies. After The Matrix, they made three not so good Matrix movies. They made a terrible Speed Racer movie. They made a confounding Cloud Atlas movie. And then they made this bomb, Jupiter Ascending, which I have not seen. Maybe they shouldn't be making $200 million sci-fi movies, is my point. I wish that wasn't the case, because they're technically amazing filmmakers, but The Matrix Reloaded sucks balls. Then I go to The Last Exorcism, part two. Because just describing that movie makes me sleepy. 
<laughs> and because I like the first last exorcism so much, you know, it's frustrating. In third position, the story of a crazy cop who may or may not be fighting a predator. <laughs> I love it. I have to watch it again. Seriously. <laughs> again, we didn't mention it in the review, but that scene in the uh, in the graveyard where he's mourning his partner's loss, and he turns around, and the his partner's necklace is swinging in the tree branch. I don't know. Like he's constantly talking to himself through the movie. He's never following the rules. He establishes himself as being a hair crazy. I'm just saying it might be there if you look for it. Yeah. The reason I put A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, in second place <laughs> is not because it's an amazing movie. It's because it's a hilarious movie. <laughs> <laughs> like, as a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, it's pretty much a disaster. But as a cultural artifact, and as a movie that's just so fucking weird that you kind of need to see it, <laughs> I think that, yeah. There is something important about <laughs> There's it. There's something about it. Like, uh, honestly, if, if your interest is gender studies... You, you should watch this movie. Yeah. Or, if, you know, you just have a soft spot for the crazy 80s. Because this is a crazy movie. I will agree with you, and I will put Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 in first place. But I will reiterate that this episode is called Terrible 2s. And me putting it at the top of the list doesn't necessarily mean that I'm endorsing it to anyone. I just think he's probably the best filmmaker at work here. I would agree. I'm not endorsing Halloween 2 either. I'm just saying I didn't particularly like Halloween 1, and <laughs> Halloween 2 is batshit crazy. It kept me entertained. It is a perverted circus, that is for sure. Yep. Well, there is one more bit of business. Oh. So, we have a history with Day of the Dead 2, Contagium. When it came out in the early aughts, uh, we, I rented it from the Blockbuster because it still existed. Yeah. Did you watch it with me? I'm yeah, trying to I remember. watched it with you. We watched it at my house, actually. And uh, on, on 10th Street. I was kind of unhappy about it. Despite this, for some reason, years later, I bought a copy of it for $2. I guess that some reason was so that I could tear it apart on the podcast <laughs> and maybe save people from it. But this is how much I don't like Day of the Dead 2 Contagion. It's going to be destroyed, and it's going to be destroyed on the podcast. We're going to live record us destroying the disc and then setting it on fire. We're going to destroy it first? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, well it'll be destroyed by the fire, presumably, as well. <laughs> but uh, Okay. Not only do I not recommend this movie, but I'm destroying this copy so that nobody will ever be forced to sit through this fucking thing. Uh, there I... is no sequel to Day of the Goddamn Ten. <laughs> <laughs> might I suggest that for a starter you take it out of the package, lay it face down on the ground, and rub it back and forth with your foot. Oh, oh. That would probably be something that I would enjoy doing a lot. Where did I put the stupid movie that we're going to destroy? Haha. <laughs> Alright. Just make sure that there's not another movie put in there by accident. No. It's Day of the Dead 2 Contagion. Oh, shit, I dropped it. Oh, no. Oh, I dropped it again. <laughs> oh, no, I raked it across heavy concrete. Look at all of those scratches. <laughs> Holy shit. I am doubtful that that would ever play again. Oh, shit. <laughs> I totally just snapped the case in half. 
oh, and no, damage the, the art. Fucking movie's getting bended in half. <laughs> That's no oh, good. Are you God. bending it? <laughs> You're bending it. You're bending it. It, it, was, it, it was totally unintentional. Oh, oh, no. I was trying to fix the bend, and it ended up snapping in two. Maybe I could special order it from Amazon and pay like $70 because the physical medium is dying. Someday I'm going to wake up in bed needing, oh, shit, whoops, to watch Day of the Dead Contagium again. Oh, no, I fucking did it again. Hey, should we move this shit outside for a second? We All right, we have relocated to the great outdoors. I have taken the destroyed packaging and broken case, which I am now regretting. That case could have been used to help. How's a good movie? We've soaked the whole business in lighter fluid, and now Jeremy is going to do the honors. Here we go. Uh, oh my god, I can't even light a match. You gotta want it. Oh my god, Maybe Jeremy's gonna fucking match. <laughs> Maybe Jeremy's gonna do this. <laughs> okay, let's try this again. Hold it closer to the stem. Oh my god, this movie does not want to be fucking burned. <laughs> it can't be burned. Jeremy. Satan, <laughs> Satan no is way. protecting his movie. Alright, I'm gonna try the other side and see if that makes a difference. I think we're gonna have to go inside and go get a fucking light. <laughs> Okay, pause it, I'm pause scared. it. <laughs> okay, we're continually trying to destroy this evil movie. Okay, I've, this this can't fail now. Mm. I've actually grabbed a small handful of matches, and I'm going to light one end of all of them and then toss them. And the lighter is finally getting them. All right, we got flame. Oh my goodness. Folks, you can't see this because this is an auditory medium. Yes. But an actual portal to hell has opened up underneath our feet, and demons are dragging this movie back to the hell from whence it came. And uh, deep within the flames, I think I can hear someone screaming, No! <laughs> I hope that the, even if this is banished to hell and people in hell are forced to watch it over and over again, I feel worse for them. I mean, like, worse for them. They were already in hell, but now I feel worse for them. I just added some more lighter fluid because this was not enough. Um, oh, if you can hear that wonderful sound, that's the sound of flames flaring up. You know... This is cathartic. It does feel kind of good to know that I'll never be subjected to that movie again. <laughs> and I think this is a, a lesson to be learned for us as well, that... Um, Injustices can be corrected. All we have to do is just reach out and and grab life by the tender bits and yank and yank <laughs> and we can bring our own results, our own justice. We are the masters of, of our own destinies. Listen to it sizzle. Oh, it's a wonderful sizzling sound. <laughs> That's plastic burning. Die movie. Die. I'm getting a little lightheaded. Are you ready to? <laughs> <laughs> and so ends another very special edition of Rank and Review. Thanks, J. Adrian Cook. Yeah, it was my pleasure.
thank you so much for listening to Rankin Review. I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. Um, um, please send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And seek us out on iTunes, seek us out on Facebook, whatever service you're using to listen to the podcast. Give us a plug. Tell a friend. I'm trying to get as many people in eight years to this podcast as possible. Until next we speak, take care.